Okay, thank you so much, Ryan, and, and I, I pray that uh, you were blessed as well as I was and that you continue to just tune in, and, and I cannot wait to see what God is going to do and how He's going to lift up a team that we're going to be able to praise and worship the Lord Jesus Christ together. It is so sweet just to be able to get together with a couple of brothers just here uh, that, that are doing this uh, this recording, and it's it's just amazing. I cannot wait until we're back together again, and uh, with no restrictions. But when when we do open up, as I mentioned, we will open up safely, and we will have social distancing, and as they call it. And of course, we'll have uh, our sanitation department make sure that everything is clean. So uh, anticipate and wait for uh, February the seventh. Praying that you can join us. Let me ask you to open up your Bibles to Galatians chapter one. Galatians chapter 1. If you haven't done so already, you have an outline on Facebook that you can download or you can open up and you can follow along with what it is that we are talking about. Now last week I introduced you to Paul the man. Paul who he was and what he did and why he was so passionate about preserving this gospel, this gospel of Jesus Christ. It was a gospel that came to him by Jesus Christ himself. He wasn't taught by man. He wasn't taught by any counsel. There was no laying on of hands by anybody else. It was Jesus Christ himself that gave him the message. Twelve years later, when he meets the people in Jerusalem, the other apostles, he finds and they find that the message just comes together and it is the same message. It's not the message that these people in the churches of Galatia had been teaching and preaching. You see, the people in Galatia were the churches that were there that Paul himself had raised up. And he raised up a bunch of disciples and taught them that it is by the grace of God that we're saved, not by works. It is God's grace, nothing that you and I do to get saved. God does it. And we're going to see that here in just a bit. And the interesting thing is that once Paul left, these, what they call today, we call them Judaizers. And we call them Judaizers because they said, well, Christianity is only for the Jews. Christianity was given to the Jews. Yes, Jesus was a Jew and the apostles are Jews. And even Paul is a Jew. So it's just for us. Why is Paul teaching these truths to these Gentiles, these Gentile people, these Gentile churches? So what they were doing as they were going around saying, yes, you can become a Christian, but you have to follow the law as well. You have to be circumcised. You have to go, against, you have to go with the traditions. And so they were stirring up all this, um, I don't know, confusion within the church. It's Jesus Christ, the blood of Christ, the cross, plus all these other things. Now, some people believe that these guys were genuine Christians or Christians that had come to know who Jesus Christ is, but they were not ordained or they were not commissioned by anybody, which they said they were. Well, we, we follow Peter and, and we follow Apollos and the, all these other guys, and, and, and it wasn't true because their message didn't line up with what Paul had taught. And so Paul is writing this letter. One of the things that you can always assume about the letters that Paul wrote or any of the other apostles is that Paul is answering or responding to an issue, something that took place. And so Paul has already heard of all these Judaizers making all this confusion because you'll see in verse 6 that he automatically just jumps on them and he says, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Now he goes on to say, not that it's a gospel in itself, because there is no other gospel, there's only one gospel, one good news. And so this gospel, this message that Paul preached, he was so zealous for it. And, and, and he says, you cannot have legalism. You cannot have any of these other things. He wasn't trying to say, don't listen to the law. If you're Jewish, then yes, that's part of your heritage. You, you, you go ahead and you follow the dietary laws. You go ahead and follow the, you know, but as far as the, uh, the, the festivals and everything else that you do to appease God, God's already been appeased by the sacrificial lamb, which is Jesus Christ. You don't have to do that on a, on a yearly basis. It doesn't have to take place like that anymore. And especially if you're not a Jew, and if you're a Gentile, well, that's what these guys were doing. They were trying to get these Gentiles, non-Jew people, 
Because remember, in the Jewish community, there's Jews and everybody else. And everybody else, whatever religion or race or nationality that you may be, you are considered a Gentile. And so it's the Jews. And they thought that this gospel, this message, this Christianity, this Jesus was only for the Jews. Paul says, no, it's supposed to be for all nations, for those who believe. What is this gospel? This gospel that needs to be proclaimed. We sing about it together. We lift our hands. We praise Jesus Christ. We are bold about it when we're here in service. But something happens when we walk out those doors. The gospel of Jesus, even the name Jesus, sometimes is difficult to come out of our lips. And why is that? Are you ashamed of the gospel? You know, many people would say, well, of course I'm not. As Paul said himself in in Romans chapter 1, verse 16, he says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel. This is in your outlines. For I am not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek or to the Gentile, everybody else. He says, I'm not ashamed of this gospel. He's responding to something that somebody has brought up. Because there is a shame. There is some sort of a, uh, a stigmatism. There's some sort of a, uh, it's, it's almost ugly to think about this gospel. You and I don't see it anymore. Or maybe you do. Maybe that's why we don't share the gospel. Next week, I'm going to share with you on how to share the gospel, what the gospel entails, what are the essentials of the gospel, what the gospel is and what the gospel is not. I can give you a heads up. The gospel is not your personal testimony. The gospel is not God's plan and purpose for your life. Though those two things are very good for you, and we understand that God has a purpose and a plan for your life. The gospel is not your name it and claim it and do what God and, and asking God to do what you want Him to do for you. The gospel message is about the cross. The gospel has to do with Jesus and what He did on the cross. That's the good news. And I need you to know something, beloved, that it wasn't as good a news as you and I think it was. For Paul to say, I am not ashamed of the gospel, it's something bizarre. It's almost like, why would he even be ashamed or embarrassed about that? He's not embarrassed about the gospel. Well, of course he's not, is he? But that issue must have come up. As a matter of fact, not only did it come up for him, his protege, the person that he was raising up, Timothy, he had some sort of issue with it. In 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 8, he says to Timothy, Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord. Don't be ashamed about that, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. He says, Timothy, do not be ashamed. Do not be ashamed of that testimony. I, I know it's hard to swallow. I know it's hard to preach, but preach it. Preach it as it was brought to you and it was brought to me. That is what we need to do. He knows that Timothy was his successor and was going to be the one to carry out the missionary journeys that Paul had instilled in him. Timothy was his right-hand man. Timothy had everything that Paul had poured out into him. And yet, Paul is telling him, do not be ashamed. Paul himself is saying, uh, I'm not ashamed. Am I? I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Because the gospel message, as most of you probably think you understand it, is not the gospel message of Paul's day. The gospel message was hard. It was difficult to grasp. It was not that it was difficult to preach because God used ordinary men and, and gave them a, a, a task that only God could accomplish. They weren't scholars. They weren't people of noble birth, as we'll find out. As a matter of fact, many of them were just ordinary people, fishermen, about seven of them. One of them was a tax collector. Another one was a terrorist. You know, you got people from all walks of life. And God gave them the message to proclaim it boldly. Just the message of the cross. And so when you and I, we get, we get embarrassed, 
we tend to abandon our theology. We tend to say, well, yeah, yeah, Jesus died on the cross and, and he, he died on the cross. And, and, and if you don't accept that, then you're going to die and you're going to go to hell. And, and that's basically the bottom line. If you accept what Jesus Christ did on the cross for you, then you'll spend all eternity with, with him in heaven. But if you don't, then you spend all eternity separated from God in this place called hell. And, and when you're not confident in the gospel, when you're embarrassed about the gospel, your theology just goes out the window. And so we tend to remove whatever it is that offends people, especially in this culture that seems to offend everybody. Uh, there's, there's this offended type of a, a people now that you can't say anything or else it's going to be called hate speech. So here, Paul, at the end of his life, as he's waiting for his head to be chopped off, is talking to Timothy and saying, young man, please, you're going to take the mantle. Get hold of what it is that you have. And he says to him a little bit before that, he says, you know, remember, he has to remind him, remember how when the people came and laid their hands on you, fan in the flames that which you have received. Because God did not give you a spirit of fear, of timidity, but he gave you a spirit of sound mind and of power. And that's the power that God has given us to be able to proclaim this. But somehow, when we're in the midst of people that don't know the gospel, don't know Jesus Christ, that's what happens. We lose, basically, our faculties, our understanding. We have this understanding, this cure. Because you see, the gospel message, beloved, the good news is that if people receive it, they will spend eternity with God. But... The opposite is also true, that if they don't, then they will experience the full wrath of God. Now, how would you like to tell that to your son, your daughter, or or your neighbor? You know, receive the gospel. If not, you will receive the full wrath of God. That is the message that needs to be proclaimed. Let me go to Galatians chapter 1. I'm going to just jump back into verses 3 and 5. And then we're going to jump over to 1 Corinthians because I need to walk you through this gospel message, the cross, the, the, the foolishness of the cross, and, and how it, it really was a shameful thing, a scandalous thing, a stumbling block, as many people knew it. But Paul says in verse 3 of Galatians chapter 1, he says, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Father in heaven, thank you once again for this portion of Scripture. As we go back and review parts of Scripture that we've already been through, so that you can show us and help us to see this gospel message and the struggle that these apostles had and the brand new Christians had to be able to proclaim it in all the world at that time. So, Father, give us the, the, uh, the power and the, and, and the sound mind that we need to continue to proclaim this gospel. Help us not to be ashamed of the gospel. Help us to proclaim it. The gospel and the gospel message only. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, I'd like for you to go back to uh, go back with me to 1 Corinthians. We're going to go a little bit of review right now. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 tells us the gospel message and what Paul is talking about. And, and he, he always takes an opportunity to share the gospel message as he did in verses 3 through 5 of Galatians chapter 1. He, he, he proclaims it and he always takes that opportunity to share with us what it is that the gospel message does. And he tells the people in Galatia, I, I, I cannot believe. I, can't, it's, I am astonished. I am just perplexed. I, why would you leave that gospel and try to follow something else? 1 Corinthians chapter 2, I'm just going to read these verses, then I'm going to jump up to verse 18. But in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, he says, in verses 
2 and 3, I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. It's good to know that even Paul has a weakness and a fear and a trembling when it comes to knowing Jesus Christ and him crucified and knowing what the gospel message is and having to be able to proclaim it. Kind of nice to know that he had the same problem, right? He says, frankly, you know, to come to you and to preach the gospel, to preach the cross of Jesus Christ, it it produced a weakness in me of fear and, and trembling. But he says, I decided to do it. I decided to know. I resolved in my life a deliberate act of the will to, to do. To, I made a fixed determination to rise above my natural embarrassment, to rise above my fears, to rise above my weaknesses, to rise above my tremblings, and to give you Jesus Christ in Him crucified. A commentator wrote once, he says, If you've never been tempted to be ashamed of the gospel, the reason is not that you are such an exceptional Christian, but rather that your understanding of the gospel has never been clear. You should be ashamed. You should have a trembling. You should have a fear to share this gospel to a dying world. Because when you do, you understand its full impact. And, and to to preach this and to teach this and to talk to people about the gospel, especially in our culture. But you'd think our culture was bad. Let me share with you a little bit about Paul's culture. Paul lived in a shame-honor culture, meaning that, you know, it was either you, if you were shamed, then you were worthless. And if you were honored, you were great. And the whole purpose of existence for the Greeks in Paul's time was to be honored. You didn't want to be shamed. You didn't want to be humiliated. As a matter of fact, they had no word for humiliation. Paul had to make that word up just to be humble. As a matter of fact, uh, a great writer named Homer, he writes, the chief good is to be well spoken of. The chief evil is to be badly spoken of by one's society. That was the creed, the model that they lived by, to be spoken well of. And so you did everything for your appearances, for your speech, for your everything that you did to bring in and build up this honor that people can honor you with. And so you know, what you did in honor, you, you, you did in honor. You did it to, to grow yourself, and you avoided everything that brought you shame. You wouldn't get involved with anybody that was of a lower class or whatever the case may be. So Paul ministered in this shame-sensitive, honor-seeking culture, and he ministered with a message that was basically shameful, that was basically shameful, and brought upon the message Uh, the messenger, public dishonor. And this message that they would bring of this Christ that was crucified on a cross and he was scorned and beat and and brought to this humiliating point was a message that brought scorn and rejection and persecution and sometimes even execution. It was such a shameful message that people died for giving it. Now, this is the culture that Paul was preaching in. And so we have to understand that, number one, The gospel message is a gospel for the doomed. A gospel message is a gospel for the doomed. Let me share this with you. In chapter 1, we'll go back up to verse 18, and it reads like this. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, and to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. It is the power of God. You see, now that we're introduced into these two verses, that word perishing means to be utterly destroyed and saved means to be rescued. And what we're talking about here is we're proclaiming a message of the cross as we've already heard is that people live in great danger. They are in danger of perishing and, and that is of being destroyed by God and they desperately need to be rescued. This message is for those that are dying. As I mentioned earlier, they are under the wrath of God and God's wrath is going to be displayed upon them and poured out upon them if they don't 
grab and hold on and understand this message. The language, what it does is it pulls in all this understanding and the realities of sin and judgment and death and hell. It is inseparable of the issue in the Christian gospel. And the issue in the message of the cross is rescuing sinners from an eternal damnation and separation from the love of God. The cross is not about psychological felt needs. The cross is not about self-esteem. The cross is not about feeling better about yourself. The cross is not about an increased level of happiness or success or well-being. The cross is about sin and hell. It is about being saved from the wrath of God. That's what the gospel message is. The gospel message is what Jesus Christ did on the cross. This is why Paul says the word of the cross, it's folly, it's foolish, and it's, and it's beyond understanding and thinking. And so we have this theology right now in, in our culture that says, you know, if you're doing good, then God must be blessing you. And if you're not doing good, then God must be cursing you. Something is wrong. It's the same kind of theology that Job had and his friends. It's the same kind of theology that that seems to go against what God is saying. No, this gospel message is for the doomed, those like you and me that at one time we were separated from the love of God. And by God's grace, he saved us and he brought us into his, into his church. And the, 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 same, the same thing is said about, about the gospel message and those that are receiving it. But you see, not only is the gospel message for those that are doomed, number two, the gospel is for the disgraced. The gospel is for the disgraced. Paul says in verse 18 again, he says, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. Folly, the word folly comes from the Greek word moriah, where we get our word moron. You know, it's moronic. It's, it's a message. It's, it's idiotic. It's, it's foolish. It's, it's that type of message that, that just doesn't seem to get across. What does that mean? You know, what do you mean that Jesus died? He was God and he died? Uh, it, and he goes on to say that uh, in verses 22 and 23, a little bit later, for Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. That's exactly what it was. And, and so when Paul is preaching this and teaching this to the people in Corinth, he says, you know, this is the type of message that we are involved in, into bringing this message that is not going to make sense to the world. As a matter of fact, it's foolishness. It's, it seems to bring, it's folly. It's, you know, how, how is it? The Greeks, the Jews demand signs. They want to see signs. The Greeks, they want to seek wisdom. But we preach a Christ that's crucified, a God that was killed on the cross. Now, living in ancient times in the world, and you're talking to Jews, Jews had this messianic expectation. Their messianic expectation was that Messiah was to come and there would be signs and wonders. Not like the signs and wonders that you're thinking about, but their signs and wonders were more the celestial signs. The, the, the stars falling from the sky, the sun standing still, the, the moon actually bleeding red blood. They were looking for those types of signs. Signs that only God can accomplish. Not these signs that charlatans can do, like moving certain articles or, or, or doing things that, of that nature. They were looking for signs that only God himself would be able to accomplish. And so you have this messianic expectation. On the other hand, the Greeks or the Gentiles were looking for wisdom, signs of a complex knowledge uh, or, or these philosophies that existed at the time. And, and they wanted some, some kind of word that really made them think and ponder. And that's who they were. And, and, and what does Jesus do? Well, he comes along and, and those who preach the gospel after him and they presented a scandalous message, a scandalous message, a crucified Messiah. Rather than the Messiah producing wonders in the sky, the Messiah ends up on a cross, dead, buried, and then supposedly he resurrected. That's not the person that we had been waiting for. We wanted this earthly king. We wanted a knight in shining armor on a white horse and a sword establishing his kingdom here on earth. And the Messiah ends up dead. Bizarre, outrageous. It's offensive to the Jewish mind to even think about it. What? 
Messiah is dead? That's not the Messiah that we've been looking for. That's even blasphemous. And the Greeks, their expectation is, is of this eternal creator of the universe. If he was going to show up, he definitely wouldn't be dead. And more than likely, not even crucified to top it all off. I mean, their gods were supposed to live forever. That too was equally moronic. That too was also just dumb, scandalous. And this, made, and this made it worse by the course of the crucifixion itself. Now, I don't know if you know anything about the crucifixion in the first century, but the first century Romans weren't the ones that in, invented the crucifixion. It was invented or brought up by the Parthians, and they brought it up, and, and it was mainly more for humiliation. The crucifixion was a very cruel way of dying. The crucifixion was never meant to kill you. The crucifixion was meant to kill you slowly, put you on display, and let you just die by the elements. Eventually what would happen is you would, you would be stretched out and your feet would be nailed so you can pick yourself up and take a breath. And then as soon as you got tired, you just let go. But the, the thing is about a human being is he wants to prolong his life as much as possible. And he would do whatever it takes to take that next breath. And sometimes it would last days. They would last weeks. They would be crucified very low where the wild animals would come by and, and, and uh, just chop off their feet and chew on their, on their limbs. And, and the birds would come by and they would die of, of that type of nature. But most of the time, the condemned would die of asphyxiation. They would, their body would collapse upon their lungs to where they couldn't breathe anymore. They would put them up on, on these little seats so they would last a lot longer. And what they come to find out is sometimes these men would slide off the seats just so they can die. And they ended up putting spikes on these seats and they would plant them on these seats so that they would survive even longer. The crucifixion was never meant to kill you. It was always meant to be used as an example. And they did it to the worst type of criminals. And they did it to, to those that went up against the government of Rome, and Rome was starting to crucify everybody. It became a very popular uh, form of execution. As a matter of fact, during the time of Jesus, uh, there was about 30,000 people who were crucified in and around Jerusalem during that period. It was very common. It was very systematic, and they did it just, you know, one right after another. And so when they, when they crucified somebody, in the Bible, when it says that they crucified Jesus, everybody knew what that was. There really is no explanation on how they crucified him. That's why there's a lot of debate today on the type of crucifixion. Was it a cross? Was it an X? Was it a tree? The fact of the matter is, is they crucified him, point blank. He was murdered and took the death of a condemned criminal. A, a, a death that even the Jewish people wouldn't do. As a matter of fact, the Jews, they would crucify people, but only after they were dead. After they were stoned, then they would take them and hang them off a tree, because in Deuteronomy it says, cursed is the one who is hung on a tree. And if a person was cursed, they would stone him to death, and then they would take his body and then hang him. They crucify him on a tree or hang him up somewhere for, for him to be on display. It was such a cruel, very sadistic punishment that the Romans wouldn't even crucify their own citizens or women or senators. It was solely set aside for the worst type of criminal. Uh, I believe it was somewhere around 15 BC when Jesus was maybe 12, 13, 14, 15 years old. There was a Jewish revolt, and the Roman Empire crucified 2,000 people in one day. In uh, 102 BC, uh, there was a famous Jewish history uh, of Alex Janus. He crucified 800 Pharisees, and he did this in full view of his, their wives and their children. And, and so, uh, I mean, crucifixions were just done one right after another. You just need to know this. And for him to hang on a tree, Messiah... That's scandalous. Come on, he was cursed by God because he was not only crucified, but he was crucified before he was even dead. And so the crucifixion was something that people just kind of, it just doesn't make any sense. How could Jesus be God and die that way? How? How could Jesus be God and die at all, let alone by crucifixion? Romans viewed anyone crucified as contemptuous. There's a little footnote in all of this. It, it, the, the earliest historians tell us that in Christianity, the emblem of the Christians was not a cross. 
the emblem was not this cross that you see posted or we have one in our church building. If you look at our wall or in people's homes or around their neck, the cross was not the emblem. The emblem, the earliest emblem they have found scribed up and painted on a wall is of a shepherd with one sheep leading him home. The story of Luke chapter 15 of the lost sheep. That's the picture that should be uh, portrayed and understood. And so there, 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 is, there are etchings of, of this crucified Christ and there's pictures. And, and people made fun of these people that would look up to a, a, a moronic, a stupid, dumb person that would allow himself, a, a Christ, a God, to, to allow himself to be crucified. There's a picture in Rome that is a, a, a picture of a, a crucified person with, with his head of a donkey and this crucified person and, and, and somebody kneeling before this Christ or this God that is on the cross that is really just, is, is just silly looking. And on the bottom it says, here is his God. And this is how they looked at the cross. This is how the cross was viewed. There was a Jewish historian. He says uh, that they proclaimed our madness to consist in this, that we gave to a crucified man a place equal to the unchangeable and eternal God, the creator of all. This is absolute nonsense to Gentiles. A massive obstacle to the proclamation of the message of salvation. And, and, and people would look at this and says, you know, this is, just doesn't even make sense. So in Paul's day, this is what he was fighting up against. The crucifixion, the, the scandal that just didn't make sense to the people. In fact, if God would have thought of the worst possible way to make a message marketable, this would be it. You know, God, there's got to be a better way to do this. You've got to be able to, to, to get this message out clearly in this culture. But God says, no, this is what I want to do. This is how I want it done. Somebody on a cross is not only a social pariah, but a blasphemer of God. Only blasphemers and idolaters were crucified, and as I mentioned earlier. And so this this idea that the creator of the universe, the God of, of all people is killed is just absolute madness. To the Jews, God is immortal. To the Greeks, the gods were immortal. This is a perverse and extravagant superstition, they said. No message. It wasn't an easy message. No friendly sharing. This collided with the culture. It just went totally against what anybody have ever believed. So this message, the gospel is for the doomed, and it's for those that are perishing. The gospel is for the disgraced. And number three, the gospel is for the degraded. The gospel is for the degraded. In the cross, Paul says, it's, it's foolishness. It's foolishness. In verse 19, in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, it says, For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise. And the discernment of the discerning, I will thwart. Chapter 19, this, this is sarcasm. This is mockery. In verses 20 and 21, he says, Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. The gospel makes... Get this, absolutely no concession for human wisdom. The gospel does not care about the wisdom of the world or about the people. No philosophy, no psychology, no human wisdom plays any part in whatsoever in the gospel. It not only ignores human wisdom, it, it destroys it. And that leads to the sarcasm. So, so where is the wise man? Where, you know, where is the, where's the wise? Where's those that know all these things? What good is the wisest of all humans or, or the collected wisdom of all of the wise men and all the wisest persons? What about the scribes and the writers and the, and the, the great writers? What about the great debaters of human history? All of them together cannot come together and bring salvation. Everything they offer is foolish, God says. This is a complete denunciation of the accumulated insight and understanding of what anything or anyone in the whole world can do. They did not believe the science. In Romans chapter 1, 22, professing themselves to be wise, they became what? They became fools. 
they were foolish. In fact, all the world's ideologies and everything that, that seems to be out there need to be smashed. In, in 2 Corinthians 10.5, he says, We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. All of it has to be demolished. All of it has to be knocked down. Everything that the world seems to gravitate to just cannot get you to salvation. We have a culture, we have a world, we have a people that think that they can save humanity. They can save the world by whatever it is that they're doing, making sure that the planet stays green, making sure that uh, we have plenty of food, that we create and grow better food, more food, and, and cleaner air, cleaner water. Beloved, none of that can save any of us. Only the cross, only Jesus Christ. So what are we saying to the world? Well, first of all, we're pronouncing a, a, a sentence. We're pronouncing this shameful, uh, de degraded message that the gospel really is. It's degraded. It seems to be shameful. And, and, and then we're, we're, we're saying that it's not only a deg degraded message, but it's, it's for the disgraced. And not only is the, this gospel message just for the disgraced, but it's also for the doomed. And then number four in the back of your outlines, the gospel is for the predetermined. The gospel is for the predetermined. Look at verses 18 again. Let's go back up there in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. And it says, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. It's predetermined for those who are being saved. And again, it's the word of the cross. Nothing else but the word of of the cross that is the power of God to save. And then in verse 21 of 1 Corinthians, it says, For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. To save those who believe. This is, the, this is what this message is all about. It's about that, the, the predetermined, those that God has already predetermined to save, those who believe. In our world of tolerance, in our world of including everybody, Jesus is the only way, and that's what we, He's the only way. The cross is the only way. All other ways lead to destruction. All other ways lead to hell. I asked this question a while back, how many religions are there? And if you were to Google it, you might find that there were, I forget now what the number is, uh, 4,500 religions in the world. And in, in actuality, Jesus says that there's only two. There's a wide road and there's a narrow road. There's the wide gate, there's a narrow gate. There's the good and there's the bad. That's all there is, there's sheep and there's goat. There's Jesus Christ, the only way and everything else. No other religion compares to what Jesus Christ has been able to do on the cross. And that's, that's a tough sell, even today. But think about how tough it was even back then. You know, back then, the, the, the complexities of the philosophical world of the Greeks, it was even a ridiculous way in, in the complex rabbinical teachings of the old law in which they had devised all kinds of ways to interpret what it meant to know God. And so they said, you got to follow all these traditions, all these rules, all these, um, th these commands, including the commandments, plus everything else that we say in order to be justified by God. And this, what, what the Bible says, what Paul is saying, what we preach is that there's only one way and that's it. No other name, no other way, just Jesus Christ himself. And I know we hear a lot about the wider mercy that God seems to have on everyone. God is just in love with the whole world. And God is just going to let everybody into heaven. Like the only qualification that you need to get into heaven is just to die. I've done many funerals where people get up and they just talk about this person like he was the greatest person. Him and God are the best of friends. And he's up there right now uh, telling God what to do. Or he's up there right now, you know, painting God's fence. God, this is a better color. He's up there right now uh, instructing, you know, how to lay these uh, the streets of gold. As if all a person has to do is just die to get to heaven. That's not how it works, beloved. And, and today we have to understand that God's mercy is great. And everyone receives the general mercy. Everyone receives God's general grace. 
We breathe the air. We drink the water. We have food. We have clothes. We are protected. We have provisions. God provides that. He causes the sun to shine on the righteous as well as the unrighteous. That's the general grace. But there is a special grace that he gives to those who are his. And that's the point that we're getting to. How do we overcome this? That this is just a a gospel for a a single people, a group of people. How do we overcome this? How how did they overcome this? Here, here were the apostles. You know, there were the early apostles going out to preach this impossible message in this hostile world, in, in, in sharing that, you know, this is the Messiah, but he died. And to the Greeks and to the Gentiles, this is your God, but gods don't die. You know, how is it that you do this? And, and, and the hostility was so fierce and, and people gave their life to preach this gospel. They weren't educated men. They weren't men of, of high standing. But they were preaching this gospel with all that they had. And Peter even tells them, we saw this last week in 1 Peter 4.16, Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. And here's the problem, beloved. For many of us Christians, none of us want to go through that. We don't want the suffering, the shame, the scandal. We don't want to be put aside or set aside or even targeted as those that are not being tolerant. We want to be able to include everybody. We want to be able to... And so what we do is we soften the message. Well, you know, it's just... and, and But we can't do that. That's not the gospel. The gospel message is clear, and it's foolish, and it confounds the wise. And, and so whatever difficulty there is in preaching it today, in this whatever you want to call it, post-Christian environment, whatever it is to the society, it was far more difficult to preach it in the early church. You think you had it bad. So how does God overcome this? How does He get the message out? Well, if we're going to market this tough message, we might suggest that the Lord make sure that he picks some really good, influential people to pull this off. Wouldn't you think? I mean, God, if you, this is a tough message. It's hard to get out. Let's get some people that really know what they're talking about. People that are, are scribes, people that are eloquent in their speech, kings and people of influence. Let's get these people out there and, and let them take care of it because we're just a bunch of nobodies. You know, we're just a bunch of, you know, we're not anybody's. And so let's, let's give it to them. Let's give it to the religious leaders, the presidents of the country. Why don't you give it to them? Let them preach the gospel. I'm going to tell you something, folks. That's not what he did. He picked 12. And one of them betrayed him. He picked 12. Some of the, I don't know, people that maybe you would never pick after seeing what they did. People that had no kind of education, had no kind of standing. And this is what leads us to the fifth point. The gospel is for the despised. The gospel is for the despised. As I said earlier, for the Jews demand signs and the Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and folly or foolishness or it's moronic to the Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greek, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God, for the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Then he says this, for consider your calling, brothers, Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many of you were powerful. Not many of you were of noble birth. Can you imagine? There there were not many wise according to the flesh. Not many that were, had this wisdom. Not many of them that, that had this, this body, this ability, this whatever it was. Not many were mighty, Paul says. Not many of you were, were strong according to the world standards. Not many of you were from noble birth. Not many of you were from the bloodline, from people of influential stock. There aren't many educated, wise. There aren't many powerful, influential. There aren't many high-born, noble uh, people of that bloodline. As a matter of fact, somebody said that the diatribe against Christianity said that they are the vulgarest and the most uneducated people of all times. This is the group that everybody was looking at and said, they don't even know how to speak right. They don't even know their, their ABCs, and yet they're trying to tell us 
what the gospel message is. Now, now look at this. Paul even goes on to say he tries to build them up in verse 27 and 28. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are. God chose the foolish. God chose the foolish to shame the wise. God chose the weak, the, those without strength, to shame the strong. God chose the low, those that didn't have any genetic heritage, any type of, any type of birthrights, no births, the people of no births, the families of utter insignificance. God chose the despised. He chose those that were nothing, the no ones, the nobodies, and, and he even goes lower than that. God chose the things that are not. The are-nots, the, those that know ones, the, the non-existing ones, the no-beings in Greek, the, the nothings. That's who God chose. Now, I don't know what Paul was trying to do here, if he was trying to give him a pep talk or what he was doing, but man, he chose those things that just nobody else wants to pay attention to. That's who he chose. That's who he brought in. That's who he, the gospel is for the despised. It's for those that are set aside. And God is using those despised, as somebody once said, the deplorables, to bring this message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And, and so those people, though, that group of people, and then those that followed them, it was ridiculous. You've got an absurd, ludicrous, bizarre, unbelievable message, and you put it in the hands of a bunch of nobodies? And you want people to hear you and listen to what you have to say? Beloved, the reason you know this message right now and the reason I'm able to preach it is because that's exactly what God wanted to do. I'm afraid that if you were to put it in the hands of the nobles, of the kings, of the religious, they would have gone into business meetings. They still would have been in business meetings. They still would have been trying to devise ways on how to make money from this. As a matter of fact, that's what happened during the Reformation. The Reformers said, we got to get back to this message. We got to get back to understanding the gospel of Jesus Christ and how despicable and dis just disruptive it was to those that preached it. That, that it was for the doomed, the disgraced, the degraded. That it was for those that were predetermined, the despised of the world. That's who this message is for. This message is not for those that are, think that they're righteous and, and that they're healthy. Jesus himself said, I didn't come for the healthy. I came for these people, the sick, the despised, the dejected. Those that God sent me to save. And so this is a message, a message that, that, that just doesn't seem to make any sense, gives it to people that don't seem to be able to have it all together. Why? Why did he do that? Well, I'm glad you asked that question because he answers that very quickly to shame the wise, to shame the wise, to, to make it crystal clear that this message does not come by human wisdom and to shame the strong, that it does not come by human power, not by wisdom and not by human power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. Verse 29, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Well, look what we did. Here's how we were able to accomplish and raise 3,500 people in our church. I remember one time I was at a conference and we were pastors all gathered together. And all these pastors, you know, it must have been about 15 of us, 10, 15 of us, and, and one by one. So, okay, introduce yourself, tell us about your church. And the first pastor would, oh, you know, I'm a church, we're about 1,200 strong. Oh, I'm another church, we're about, hey, we'll have about 3,000. Yeah, our church, you know, and everyone. And they came to me, and, uh, we, and I says, yeah, I'm, my name's Pastor Sal. I'm in, I'm in San Bernardino. I have a church under uh, 1,000. And I go, 76 to be exact at that time. 76 is below 1,000, right? And I don't know, I just... Felt kind of awkward in the midst of all these self-elevating pastors. And that's how we do this. We build it up. We call it um, God's work. And, and, you know, again, 
I have nothing against these huge churches, these big churches that God is doing some great work through. You know, I, I can name you off a bunch of them right now. And, and the, the thing about this is it's not about what you and I can do. It's not about what man can do. It's what God is doing because God used these nobodies, these nothings, the, the scum of the earth, as we'll find out. These, he used these to reach thousands of people. The first message Peter preached, 3,000 were saved, and God added to their number daily. This happens all the time when we give ourselves totally to God. But how can such a group have an impact? How can they do this? You know, Paul gives us a little deeper insight when we go down to verse 9 in, in, uh, in, in, in 2 Corinthians, in 1 Corinthians, I'm sorry, in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, he says this, I think that God has exhibited us as apostles as last of all. And this is in chapter 4 of 1 Corinthians. Like men sentenced to death, because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels and to men. To this very hour, in verse 11, he says that they were hungry, they were thirsty, we are poor, poorly dressed, and buffeted, and homeless. And then you go down a little bit deeper in verse 13 of chapter 4. When slandered, we entreat, we have become and are still like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. This is who we are. This is who the apostles were. They were mistreated. They were beat. They were put aside. And, and, and when you call a person into this ministry, into the gospel of Jesus Christ, we somehow forget to tell them this part. Well, people aren't going to want to buy that. You know, we have to soften the message. We have to soften the mood. We have to, we, we have to look for seekers. These seekers aren't going to hear this message. And so the message was difficult back then, and we think it's difficult now. So we build this whole picture of what God wants and what we want of God. Come and get your needs met. Come and get yourself healed. Come and request and ask and demand of God. Because God has to give you what you want. Beloved, that's not the gospel message. The gospel message is you surrender yourself. The gospel message is you deny yourself. Take up your cross daily and follow Jesus Christ. That's a hard message. But that's the message. Beloved, that's the message of the cross. That's what God has called us to do. And God has called us to, to bring that message. It's not popular. And I know that somehow all of these things just don't seem to make sense, but that's who we are. Why? Why are we doing this? For God who said, and, and I'm reading out of chapter 4 again, verse 6, for God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus. And that's what we do. And, and, and that's, that's what we're doing. We have this light within us. And Paul says in chapter 4 of 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 7, he says, But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. What treasure? What was the treasure of the gospel? It's the power that God gives us. It's, it's the treasure of the gospel to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. That's why we preach Jesus Christ as Lord. That's why we share what we know. That's why it is that we have to be truthful and we have to be straight up with the gospel message. Because the last thing I want to share with you is number six. The gospel is for the decided. The gospel is for the decided. Look at verse 21. Let's go back to verse 21 of 1 Corinthians chapter 1. We go back to, the, to, to where we were at a little bit ago. In chapter 1, verse 21, it says, For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe to save those who believe. And then jump over to verse 24. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. 
And every time you see the reference to a call in the epistles of the New Testament, it is the efficacious call unto salvation by the divine power of God that produces regeneration. It is not an invitation. Please receive Jesus Christ. When you are called, you're called unto salvation. It's not a call to raise your hand and maybe you can make up your mind and God is sitting there waiting, man, I hope he does it. I hope he does it. I hope he gives his life to me. Well, not today. Maybe tomorrow. Come back tomorrow. Come back next Sunday. And I'll be waiting again, God says. No. Jesus himself says, you didn't choose me. I chose you. God is the one that calls. Every time you see that, it's a call unto salvation. Again, in in verse 26. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to the worldly standards. For many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. Okay? Those who believe are those who are called. And the message is for those who believe. And who are those that believe? Those who are called. And look at verse 27. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. Who are those that believe? Those that are called. Who are those that are called? Those he chose. Look at, follow my logic on this. And in verse 28, God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not to bring to, to nothing that things that are. God has chosen those who believe that are called, and the called are the chosen. Let me say that again. God has chosen those who believe are the called, and the called are the chosen. So we go out on, on our own strength with, with an impossible message and we try to, you know, with these uninfluential lives and we preach this message because God is well pleased. He finds delight and satisfaction in saving those who believe. Who are those who are called because they are those who have been chosen? No way around it. That's just the way it is. Why does God do that? Why does God do that? Well, I'm glad you asked that question as well. Look at verses 29 and 30. So that no human being might boast. It is by grace that you've been saved through faith. This is in Ephesians chapter chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. It is by grace that you've been saved through faith. And this, not of yourself, but it is the grace of God. Not by works, so that you won't boast. It is the grace of God. You don't decide. You don't come forward. You don't, well, maybe today, maybe tomorrow. I'll think about it. I'm kind of seeking. I'm kind of looking. There are no seekers. There are no, nobody. everybody, and I've heard this before, but everybody is seeking. And, and it's not necessarily true that they're seeking God. But what they're seeking are the benefits of God. They're seeking the, well, of course, the, the, the removal of sin. They're seeking the, the, the removal of shame, the removal of guilt. They are seeking the benefits of God, but they are not looking for God himself because they know that God himself is very, very strict. He wants you to follow Jesus Christ. I mean, he gave me eternal life. How can I say that is strict? How can I say that that is just overpowering? Oh, I can't do that. And that's right. Most people can't. That's why he chooses, he calls, and he brings to something those things that aren't. Verse 30, one of the greatest verses, when he says, Jesus, who became to us the wisdom of God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ. It's because of him. Not because of yourself, not by works. You are in Christ, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification. And because of Him, you are in Christ Jesus. That's clear. And because of Him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us the wisdom from God's righteousness and sanctification and redemption. The only way anybody will ever believe this message The only way anybody can ever accept this message, this scandalous message, this moronic message, this foolish message, by people that don't seem to have it together, the only way that that is going to happen is if God brings them into the picture. The only way that anybody will ever believe this message is if God chooses, God calls, and God saves.
It's by His doing. Not by yours, not by mine. So when you share the gospel and someone says no, that's not your, not you that they're rejecting. It's not even the message that they're rejecting. They're rejecting God Himself. And at that point in time, you just keep moving. It, it took me some time before God just woke me up. I knew about God. I knew about the things that I needed to do. But, but God one day just woke me up. And it was the Word of God that brought me to life. And I knew that through the Scriptures that I was a sinner. And I knew that I was destined to spend all eternity in hell. As a matter of fact, when I brought my children to church, I told the pastor, I says, I want you to, you know, dedicate them because I wasn't Catholic. I didn't, I didn't do the Catholic thing. I didn't go to church all that often. And, and he says, why do you want me to dedicate your children to God? And I said, because I don't want them going to hell. And he says, well, what about you? He says, well, it's too late for me. I knew that I was destined to go to hell. And I just didn't know how to get there. And he says, you don't have to. Let me share something with you. And he says, it is by grace that you're saved through faith. And this not of yourselves. It is a gift of God. You mean God would give me that? He said, yes. And right there and then, both my wife and I, we bowed our heads and we committed our life to serving him up to this point. It's been a journey. Beloved, you can do the same thing. If God is showing you these things, just surrender just surrender and continue. And next week, I'm going to share with you the gospel of Jesus Christ on things that happens to a regenerated believer, on things that you should be doing. Uh, not necessarily all, everybody's going to be a pastor, but on things that should be happening in your life. So what he says here, that, that the only way that we can do is, is by God himself. And in 1 Corinthians verse chapter 1, verse 31, and this is why he does so that, as it is written, that the one who boasts, boasts in the Lord. We give God all the glory. We give God all the glory. But you know this is shameful. Even the, the sovereignty of the cross is shameful. It's, it's one of those things that are moronic. And so those are the things that we find and we see at the cross. So what do we have left? Let's get back to the text. And it says in chapter 2, chapter 2, very, very next verse. And in verse 1 it says, And I... When I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. One of the things that we learned last week in the book of Galatians is that those that were going up against Paul said he doesn't even speak right. He doesn't even have a good vocabulary. Yeah, he might have been a rabbi or whatever the case may be. But And Paul says, yeah, I don't come to you with lofty speech or wisdom. All I'm bringing to you is the cross. This moronic message that people are chasing me down for because that is what God wanted to do. And then he goes on to say, For I decided, in verses 2 and 5, For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. That's all. That's all I want to know. If anything is ever said about Pastor Sal, is that that's all I want to know is Jesus Christ and Him crucified. That's all Paul wanted to know. That's all I want you to know as to why he was crucified. You see, we are a sinful people, and God is not. He's a just God. And because God is just, he has to punish sin. Otherwise, he wouldn't be just. It's like going to court, and somebody comes up to the judge. What did you do? Oh, I murdered my wife. Ah, it's okay, no big deal. Just go on back out there. What did you do? Oh, I, I ran over some kids. Oh, okay, that's no problem. Just go ahead. I mean, that wouldn't be a just judge. A just judge administers justice. And God is just. And when we violate the sin, when we violate the law of God, and we sin against a just God, He has to deal with it. That is our problem. Because we've all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All of us have. And so we have a problem, beloved. And that's what the cross is all about. Jesus took my place on the cross. That's the message. That's the good news. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in the demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Tune in next time. This is Pastor Sal.
North Park Baptist Church, and I want to share with you the gospel message. But if you understand right now that you are a sinful human being, and Jesus Christ, what He wants to do is show you that He died on the cross for you, that I beg you to open up your heart and understand and let Him make that transformational change within you. And He can do that right now. And let Him take care of that sin problem. You won't be perfect. I'm not. But you need to take the next next step. Join us as often as you can. Reach out to us through this Facebook page or through the YouTube or SoundCloud. And let us know how we can help you. There are verses that I can give you. Bible uh, books that you can read. John chapter 1. Read John, the book of John. And then get back to me. Get plugged in to a church that will teach you the truth. And I pray that you join us on February the 7th. Father in heaven, thank you once again for this incredible message that just is when we think about it and we look at the time of Paul and and the message that he was proclaiming in such a, a vulgar culture. And we look at and we see how this message really just didn't make sense to many of them because the message was difficult. The messengers were hard to even come, come close to. And to to understand, they too themselves weren't educated men. But yet, you gave that responsibility to them. You gave the the life-changing message that would determine the eternal existence of humanity to faulty men like me. So, Father, I pray that we can take hold of this message and share it with our loved ones as if their life depended on it. Because it does. Help us to grab this gospel message, Lord. It's only by grace and nothing else. Thank you, Lord, for what you've done and how you continue to bless us and what you continue to heal. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. If you have your Bible still with you, open up to Romans, excuse me, Numbers. Numbers chapter 6, verse 22. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to Aaron and his sons, saying, Thus you shall bless the people of Israel. You shall say to them, The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and to be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Shalom. Until next time, this is Pastor Sal, signing out. 